Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and ISLC.org and the newsroom. And your host, Dr. Narjos Flores. Hello, I'm Dr. Narjos Flores, Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. And I'm your host for this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. The delivery of cancer care is affected by many factors, including insurance coverage, language barriers, and distance from and to the cancer center. Today, we'll be talking about lung cancer care in rural America. But some of the information we share could apply to other geographic locations in which distance to cancer care plays a role in cancer care delivery. For example, Brazil, Mexico, Australia, they also encounter issues with distances to cancer care. I have today two incredible physicians that have provided care in limited resources settings have studied the unique challenges of lung cancer in rural U.S. First, I have Dr. Deborah Bruno. She's a thoracic medical oncologist at Case Western in Cleveland, Ohio. She worked in rural Nebraska for three years after her completion of fellowship. There, she established a multidisciplinary clinic for patients with lung cancer. Dr. Bruno's research focuses on the clinical management of patients with lung cancer, improvement in the enrollment of minorities in clinical trials, and access to next gene sequencing testing for all patients. Thank you for coming, Dr. Bruno. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Duma. It's a, a real pleasure to participate in your podcast. Thank you. We also have Dr. Gabriel Rock. Associate Professor of Medicine at the O'Neill Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of Alabama. Dr. Rock's research interests include improving the quality of healthcare delivery for patients with cancer. We emphasis on shared decision-making, payment reform, and provisions of supportive care services to patients. Dr. Rock has a strong interest in the interface between community oncology practices and academia. Thank you, Dr. Rock. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here and talk with you today. I have the honor knowing Dr. Bruno and Dr. Rock for quite some time, so we are going to be addressing each other by first name. In the United States, urban areas make up to only 3% of the entire land area of the country, and they're home of around 80% of the population. Conversely, 97% of the country's land it's rural, but only 19% of the population lives there. Treating patients in rural areas of the United States presents unique challenges. Doctors Brunus and Rock, what are some of the three most pressing challenges when treating patients with lung cancer in rural U.S.? I will start with Deborah. Thank you, Narjust. First of all, I think it's so important that you bring this very pressing discussion to the table today. So I really appreciate you're doing that and, and participating in this discussion. There are so many challenges involved in delivering guideline concordant lung cancer treatment in rural areas. But I, if I need to pick three pressing challenges to the delivery of high quality care to patients with lung cancer in, in remote areas, I would say, number one, the fact that most rural patients live in healthcare professional shortage areas, right? So this makes the delivery of specialized care 
a real challenge. Patients with lung cancer typically require a comprehensive, multidisciplinary team for their treatment, from the oncology providers to interventional pulmonologists, nutritionists, supportive oncology professionals, physical therapists, and it's impossible to get that whole team at those geographically challenged areas of the U.S. Number two, I think rural patients are already typically in a socioeconomic disadvantage situation to start with. So lack of insurance coverage is a very important barrier. And some farmers, for instance, even though they may have some form of insurance, they may not be able to provide the high co-pays to cover the costs of oral target therapy agents, for instance, or to cover the price of comprehensive genomic testing. And I would say the third pressing challenge is, is the lack of quick access to high acuity hospitals. When it comes to managing toxicities from treatment, this is really key. So a febrile neutropenic patient may have to drive 60 miles before getting to an emergency room, and this may result in a negative outcome. Thank you, Deborah. I think, you know, we often forget how privileged or how lucky we are to have resources or, or centers. Gabrielle, in addition to what Deborah mentioned, what are some other pressing challenges when treating patients with lung cancer in rural U.S.? I think there are several things that are really, you know, complementary to what Deborah has mentioned. You know, when we talk about the access and the fact that it's very difficult to find the interdisciplinary care really in close places to those patients, I think it's important to recognize also that there are many community practices that are shutting their doors right now just because of the economics of providing cancer care delivery. And this is really problematic because not only can they not access interdisciplinary care, Oftentimes, they have difficulty accessing even basic oncology care, receiving infusions, and are forced to drive a significant distance. So we did a study in our region in which we looked at Medicare patients who are traveling to care and found that about a quarter of patients were traveling more than an hour to get to their cancer care. And for those patients that were traveling, in many cases, particularly those in initial care, they had higher patient cost responsibility as well as you know, personal cost and utilization rates than patients who are living closer. And I think that distance you know, is an important piece because it also means that patients may be less likely to you know, come in for you know, acute symptom management and they may be waiting longer at home because of the lack of access to a local resource. I also think another particular challenge facing rural patients is really the cost associated with care. And so that can come in a number of different varieties. I mentioned issues surrounding distance, but I think it's not trivial if you think about the amount of time patients are often driving to their care. You know, I living in Alabama, you know, in Birmingham have patients who drive sometimes four hours to see me in clinic. And if you think about that, particularly for a patient with advanced cancer who may have a limited life expectancy, we're really asking a lot in terms of what is a valuable commodity with time. And in addition to their time costs, you know, just the you know, pragmatic dollars that they spend, not only on the increasing healthcare costs in general, but on gas, on hotels, you know, things that just are unique to that patient population who is, in fact, coming from a distance. So I think those are a few things 
that um, I would add to the list. Thank you. And I think having both of you perspectives is invaluable because there's so many things that we forget. I was in Wisconsin and this is my first winter in Boston, but I remember how my patients, we plan because they were driving, they were farmers, they were planning about you know the winter. And there's so many things that we cannot control. And that's one of them. And I would say during these months, at least 10% of patients needed to schedule their appointments. We have seen a lot of more emphasis in the care of patients in rural U.S., but it's sometimes hard to find out how much has been a lot of talk and how much has been action. So in the last 10 years, have you seen an improvement in cancer care in rural U.S., and are we improving access to clinical trials to those patients? Deborah, I will start with you. Yeah, so I would say that improvements have occurred mostly when it comes down to access to treatments, to access to tests. Many rural hospitals have developed some operational changes that include mobile units that travel with PET scanners, for instance, or laboratories, so the patients don't have to come to the test unit. The test unit comes to them. And telemedicine is here to stay. And patients now who live far can talk and see their providers without having to travel miles and miles for a face-to-face encounter. So This is crucial when it comes to monitoring compliance with oral therapies, as well as identifying and treating early-stage complications from cancer-related treatments. So side effects don't escalate and require higher acuity care. The Affordable Care Act has also expanded health insurance coverage to patients who are self-employed, for instance, and don't meet the poverty criteria for Medicaid. And also in the Medicaid expansion states... ACA has helped to provide coverage for regular tests, procedures associated with lung care, and this is key. But of course, there's still a disparity there as some states have not introduced Medicaid expansion. And when it comes to clinical trial access, it's a tough one to tackle, uh, specifically with treatment trials, because access to clinical trials most of the time is really a perk for being treated at a high volume practice. And those practices are usually located in urban areas. And even if we are able to bring some of those studies to more remote geographic areas in the country, the portfolio of the available trials in those areas will very likely be limited, right? So um, I would say that perhaps this is a very complex uh, issue to tackle and probably Gabrielle may have more input when it comes to, to improvement in clinical trial access. Thank you, Deborah. And, you know, twisting the question a little bit for Gabrielle, where is it, like in Alabama, where you are, is your center the primary site for clinical trials? And what have you seen and what has happened to bring those clinical trials to other parts of the state? That's a great question. So we certainly are the main center for clinical trials in the state although there are also clinical trials available at uh, University of South Alabama in Mobile as well. But, you know, I do think this is a particularly challenging area. And, you know, I think in light of the, you know, COVID-19 pandemic, this really has highlighted some real opportunities that I think have potential to influence this domain of clinical trials for patients in rural areas. For example, you know, during the pandemic, we've had some flexibility around can labs be done at home? Can visits be done by telehealth? 
And I think those are some of the you know, changes that are going to be needed to increase availability of clinical trials for patients who, you know, otherwise may find that the number of visits and the appointments and coming up specifically for labs at the institution, you know, are real barriers for patients. So I do see, you know, the potential for opportunities. I will say, you know, although this is not clinical trial specific, one of the other really interesting phenomenon that's happened in our state is some of the public health offices have also partnered to be providers of telehealth-based care where patients can go in and have somebody, you know, facilitate, you know, a more structured, you know, exam, listening to, you know, somebody's heart, taking some vitals. And so I think this is really a time in which we need some creativity about how can we provide care locally, even if there's not a traditional brick and mortar cancer center for patients. Thank you for bringing that out, Gabrielle. And I think there's a very important point because we learned during the pandemic that flexibility is possible. I remember the early days of the pandemic, you know, many amendments were done to the clinical trials, virtual consent was possible, patients could collect samples locally. And I hope that we don't lose any of that as, you know, things start to calm down and that we go back to the old practice of being very inflexible when we know now that we can do it. We can do it remotely. And for a patient that has follows by telemedicine, it is quite hard to ask them to come back into the, into the cancer center. Gabriel, had you seen any of these changes in which patients are like, oh, I can do this by telemedicine now. Why should I drive four hours all the way to Brigham to, like, to see that person? Yes, we absolutely have seen many situations in which patients are very interested in telehealth, particularly for, you know, toxicity checks. But also another unique area, which I don't think we talk about enough, is really staying connected with their doctor as their functional status, you know, isn't as good and they physically can't make it to clinic, but they want to have, you know, that contact with their team as they, you know, transition towards end of life. So I will say, you know, it's been frustrating for us in Alabama because some of the rules are changing. So, you know, currently we have a lot of difficulty providing telehealth services to patients that are outside of the state of Alabama, which is a problem since our catchment area includes, you know, parts of Mississippi and Florida and Tennessee. And so those patients are now having to drive, even though they're in fact further than the patients in Alabama because of rolling back of, you know, the current telehealth rules. And so I think, you know, it's on us as providers, as well as, you know, patients and administrators and really everyone to continue to push for that expanded access for patients, because it does make a difference in their experience. And I have to second that. And, you know, I would like to hear Deborah input, like a lot of my practice, I specialize in younger women with lung cancer are second opinions. So, you know, most of my patients don't get therapy here in Boston. They live in other parts of New England or outside of New England. So having somebody to drive, you know, for a second opinion, when in fact you can do it virtually, it adds costs, it adds distress, and it decreases access. Because I have a patient from Nigeria that I've been trying to see, and I don't want her to fly all the way here, you know, for that second opinion. Deborah, how are things back at your institution with some of these telemedicine changes that we adopted and now they're changing to, the, to what it used to be? 
Yeah, so as uh, Gabrielle mentioned, the word of the current era is just, you know, flexibility, really. So we've been very flexible. I think patients have appreciated the fact that they can see the provider from whatever they're at. I've had patients who still work, who have been able to, to call me on their cell phones and connect for a visit instead of coming and waiting for you know, two hours, you know, to see me in the actual office. And really, depending on the, the platform that we use, we can even review scans together, right? We share a screen and we can review scans and the patients are very appreciative of that. And also they can bring, I've had cases where I connected with patients in their kitchen and in kitchens and the whole family is there, right? So the, the whole family is in the room and asking questions. So for them, it's definitely a plus. And I think even for us, the pace of telemedicine can be a little bit faster than the usual face-to-face encounter. And it's more objective, I would say, in a sense, I felt that. So it's a more objective encounter. We go straight to the point. We're able really to evaluate really well our patients. And a lot of times if you have scans, I mean, except if you need to look at a, an oral cavity or a rash, and even then you can do that by telemedicine, but I think we can get by with telehealth more and more. And maybe it may decrease the costs of healthcare in the future. So I, I agree with uh, being creative. I think it's how things are moving along. And if we really plan on reaching the farther places in the US, distant rural areas, we really have to continue to invest on this development. Thank you, Deborah. And Gabriel, you mentioned some of this early in our conversation, and it's related to the, your teen study that was published in the journal of Clinical Oncology about driving distances to cancer care. And what are some of the associations that you saw particularly related to costs and patient care in this analysis? Yeah, thank you for that question. So, you know, as I mentioned, we looked at patients who traveled you know, more than an hour versus 30 minutes or less. And we found that, you know, for patients that were traveling longer than an hour compared to those traveling shorter distances, you know, across the continuum of care, hospitalization rates were higher for those people traveling. And they, you know, ranged from 4% to 13% higher in those populations. But I think another piece of that that was really important is that they were much more likely to be hospitalized locally. So they weren't necessarily coming to the cancer center all of the time to be hospitalized. But that can be challenging as well because that local hospital may not have as much familiarity with the particular drugs that they've received. And I think in the case of, you know, particularly lung cancer and immunotherapy, you know, that level of comfort with side effect management, you know, is very important. And so I think, you know, building those relationships with the community hospitals is very important. Additionally, we saw that in the initial phase of care, after patients were first diagnosed, that Medicare spending was 14% higher and the patient's personal cost responsibility was 10% higher for those who are traveling the greater distances. So I think there's a societal cost, you know, as well as sort of a cost to the pairs, but importantly, a cost to the patients. And that really can't be underestimated when you're thinking about, you know, how much patients are already spending on their health care. Thank you. And I think bringing more attention to those issues, and we need to remember that our patients that are not only their disease, and it's not only about the gas, it's about the parking, it's about the time and the loss of productivity 
that comes with all these distances that we have in this quite large country. Along those lines associated with that, Dr. Bruno in 2021 ASCO presented the results of her and her team analysis from Flatiron Dera regarding NGS testing and evaluation in several subgroups of populations. Dr. Bruno, what are some of these findings that you saw in regard to next gene sequencing that we know is essential for the treatment of our patients with lung cancer? Yeah, so the retrospective study you are referring to looked at racial disparities when it comes to biomarker and NGS testing for patients with advanced lung cancer throughout the United States. As you mentioned, we identified significant disparities in NGS testing for Black, African-American patients when compared to white patients. And in that study, 90% of the patients were treated in community practice settings. 66% of the Black African-American patients were treated in Southern states compared to 42% of white patients. However, I can't specifically tell you the patients were treated in rural versus urban setting for those practices because we did not have access to zip codes. And I think, you know, definitely though, understanding as a practitioner who treats lung cancer on a daily basis, understanding the challenges of obtaining tissue, obtaining enough tissue for testing, or even have a blood test being FedExed for liquid biopsies and having a pathologist who will not over utilize that specimen. So the tissue is not exhausted prior to NGS testing. All of those are definitely, you know, barriers when it comes to treating patients with precision medicine in rural areas. But we did not address that in that study. And thank you for mentioning that. I think one of the challenges that we often encounter is when patients come to the large center, a lot of the tissue has been already urealized. And it is quite difficult, you know, to tell a patient, oh, we need to do another biopsy. And I think that's what a lot of centers has been trying to develop these tumor boards in which other locations outside of the main center can participate. And I think that will help try to break some of these geographic challenges that treating patients in rural America has. You know, inevitably, some of, the, some of our patients will die secondary to the disease. What are some of the unique challenges when it comes to end-of-life care that you have seen while treating patients that may be very far away from the main cancer center? I will start with Gabrielle. Yeah, I think that that is an area that has a lot of challenges. And so, you know, we are asking those patients first, you know, as I mentioned before, to drive a long distance. And if they're really ill, you know, that can be physically very demanding on them. And so, you know, I often tell my patients, you know, as they approach end of life, their circle of energy gets smaller and smaller. And so we are asking those patients to take, you know, a sizable portion of their remaining energy to physically come into clinic, you know, which is a lot and really takes away from their ability to spend, you know, hours awake and interacting with their families. And so I think that is a key, you know, consideration for these patients. Another thing that we have faced, you know, in, in Alabama, and I think is true across the country in rural areas is just the access to the internet and ability to have that connectivity to engage in some of these new opportunities like telehealth. So, 
you know, we you know, would prefer a video visit, but I have patients frequently who can't do that because they don't have stable internet access where they live. Or I've had patients who've had to get into their car to drive, you know, 20 minutes from their house to be able to sit in their car for a visit. So I think another, you know, important, you know, piece of this is really expanding, you know, access from a technology standpoint for patients so that they can stay with their families, you know, closer to home at end of life. Thank you, Gabrielle. This is a very important point because we often take for granted internet. I had a patient in Wisconsin who was a farmer and he didn't have a cell phone and he didn't have a landline. So I had to call the farm that was next to him and that person would go and drive, talk to my patient and bring the patient to the house to receive a phone call. And, you know, we often forget that is a privilege and that's something that we don't have. No, everybody has access to, which is internet a cell phone, or just a phone in general. Deborah, what are some of these challenges about end-of-life care that you experience and you know, potential solutions if it, there's some out there? Yeah, so I think it comes down to the fact that we really have a healthcare uh, workforce shortage in rural areas, and it's hard for you to use the skills and the expertise of palliative care doctors when you are in those remote areas. But I think there is an opportunity to start to collaborate with the community providers. And by providers, I mean advanced practice providers as well to improve the symptom management of those patients. So you really don't have to travel. You just, you work with the providers that are closer to those patients and families. And um, again, Patients want to stay, as Gabrielle mentioned, as end-of-life approaches. They want to stay closer to their families, and it's impossible to, to demand you know, someone to get into a car to go to an area of, of broadband internet coverage to communicate with you. So maybe sometimes just a phone landline will work and will help us be there. Can I add something to what Deborah just mentioned? Of course. So, you know, I, I think Deborah mentioned, and you can cut that little purse where I asked to add, but um, so I think Deborah made a really important point too about, you know, having these partnerships with local providers. And I think to do that successfully, it needs to happen not only at end of life, but across the continuum of that patient's cancer journey. So I think the relationship between community oncologists providing care in these rural settings and the larger academic centers really benefits from, you know, a structured, frequent communication. For example, it's very appropriate for a patient to travel if they are getting access to a clinical trial that's not being offered locally. But if that patient is getting a standard of care that the local community oncologist is able to provide, you know, it's in our best interest to have them get some of that care locally and really to continue to have those established relationships so that when we really desperately need them to be able to connect with their local providers, that those relationships exist. And we haven't burned a bridge by, you know, transitioning, you know, all these patients, you know, fully to traveling for their care, when that actually is probably not in the best interests of the patient. If you don't like that, you can cut it. But I really do think that that's an important point. I think it's a very important point. And we need to talk about things that are important and that are, you know, difficult to talk about. Yeah. And 
I think it's very important to understand that we need to collaborate as a team and that mm. no patient belongs to another doctor is we're all here trying to do the same thing and is that making mm-hmm. sure our patients live longer with good quality of life. Yeah. I think that is one of the frustrations I hear from the local doctors is if a patient comes, you know, looking for a trial and then never comes back home until they're at end of life, you know, that is a huge frustration for these providers that I hear. And so I think being really sensitive to that and making sure that they're, you know, in the loop and care is provided locally when possible is really critical. And it's essential because I always talk to my patients, you know, we need to have a local doctor. I'm here as your backup dancer. That's what I say. And your backup dancer here. And because I cannot control what happens and I, you are four or five hours away. Like it is not safe for you to have an acute emergency and drive all the way to Boston. Right. So I think it's important. Deborah, is something that you like to add about this as before we move forward? Oh, yes, definitely. So as a provider who lived in a medically underserved area for three years, and I was a general oncologist at that time. So I treated patients with uh, uh, all sorts of malignancies, including hematological malignancies. And I remember very well how easy access I had to the academic group at the University of Nebraska. It was so easy to reach out to them and discuss cases. And some of my patients actually were able to enroll in clinical trials there because they guided me from the get-go and they were ready to see the patients when they needed to see those patients. And the patients would come back and we would help them with everything we could in terms of providing labs. And, you know, to a certain extent, I think that really touched the lives of those patients because I was not a specialist, of course, in that specific disease subgroup. So I really echo that. And the other thing that it's important also is to remember that it's not only a phone call, right? Sometimes you can, depending on the distance that you're going to drive, you can also be there, not every day or not every week, but you can drive so you can help and establish specific types of care. I remember we were able to develop a multidisciplinary care clinic for lung cancer patients at that location that I lived for for three years. And the University of Nebraska thoracic surgeon would drive two hours to that area and see patients together with myself, pulmonology, radiation oncology, and assess patients for potential um, curative treatments, curative surgery. And those patients before that multidisciplinary clinic existed, they were treated suboptimally by cardiothoracic surgeons in the area. So the resections wouldn't be the ideal ones. You wouldn't have lymph node sampling the way you would expect it. And definitely the lives, again, of many patients were touched by that, the fact that that surgeon was willing to help every two weeks drive that distance and see patients that were located in that area so they can be operated at the main site in Omaha. Thank you for sharing our experiences. We know that policy, government, institutional changes need to happen to close the disparities gap when it comes to cancer care in rural America. But I have a question for the two of you. 
What can providers, patients, family members, or anyone listening to this podcast do to help the current disparities in rural United States? Gabrielle? So I think there, this is a little bit of a hard question. I have to think for a minute. So I think that there are a few, you know, tangible things that all of us can do. I think first, it's important that we're having this conversation. So we need to start asking what are the unique barriers that, you know, patients and caregivers and providers in rural areas are experiencing. Because I think if you're not talking about it, you're never going to come up with those creative solutions. I think from a, you know, policy and sort of larger level, what I would love to see are further demonstration projects where there is, you know, tangible dollars that are supporting care improvement activities in rural areas. So this is a little bit of a tangent, but, you know, we were participants in Medicare's oncology care model payment reform project. And within that, there was some additional funding to support practice transformation activities with some loose guidelines. But what was important about that initiative is it allowed the clinical teams on the ground, the resources to make the changes that were necessary to improve care in their local settings. And I could see a model extending more purposefully into rural America that really, you know, put some real dollars behind that care improvement without necessarily dictating, you know, this is how you should do it, but relying on those providers to come up with the solutions that are going to meet the needs of those patients. Thank you, Gabrielle. And I will go and do the same question for Deborah. Yeah. So I, I believe that we first of all have to start by providing access to healthcare, right? So residents of rural areas, they lack insurance at higher rates, we know, than the patients who live in urban areas. And this impacts early cancer detection by screening, access to biopsy, biomarker testing, medications. Those are not covered if you don't have an insurance that covers that. So treatment of lung cancer, for instance, is shifting towards use of uh, oral medications. And a lot of our patients, they really can't afford the co-pays of precision medicine every month. So I think access to healthcare, to good healthcare, is really a must that we have to invest. And then, as Gabrielle mentioned, collaboration between academic institutions and the communities that uh, make up the catchment area of those academic institutions and holding those academic institutions accountable and rewarding them for the work they do. So, as Gabrielle mentioned, you, we need money to be able to implement health in more distant areas. And those kinds of projects need to be taken seriously and really fostered because science is evolving so fast and we may be creating more disparities when we don't catch up and bring those advances to more distant areas. And I also think that the same way we have navigators in our you know, main major academic institutions who help our patients get from A to B to C in a reasonable, reasonable amount of time. We also need to invest in rural navigators. And those are community-based people. They, these are local people that may engage with providing a number of resources to those patients that we are 
you know, as healthcare providers, we may not be able to identify and, and know that they're available. And I want to build on that too. That's been an area where the University of Alabama at Birmingham has really had strength over the years. So we have a very robust community health advisor program that specifically, you know, reaches into the black belt in the in the deep south and have over 400 community health advisors working with these communities and they are helping, you know, the communities engage with screening programs including currently a, a large lung cancer screening initiative. And I think those types of programs need to be built across the United States. And, you know, we need to be able to have more interaction between these community health advisor programs for best practices that we can reach the most people and prioritize the community health advisor work as important. I can be talking to the two of you for hours about this very important issue about lung cancer in rural America. Before we go, For our listeners, what is the take-home message about the care of patients with lung cancer in rural U.S.? Deborah? So discussions like this that bring awareness to an audience that is eager to make a difference are really important because as providers, patient advocates, institutions, policymakers, we are all somehow responsible for those disparities. So how can we move forward by addressing healthcare coverage, by improving the rural life in general, including the promotion of education and health literacy in those communities? And in order to bring a specialized workforce to the care of those patients, we have a real need to integrate resources that are already available in academic institutions with the ones existing in community practices, because the advances of the lung cancer treatment are happening too fast, and we need to tackle those barriers in a quite urgent uh, manner. Thank you, Deborah. Gabrielle, what is the take-home message for our listeners about lung cancer care in rural America? I think, you know, echoing what Deborah said, you know, having the conversation and making sure that these disparities are not perpetuated as we have advances in lung cancer treatment is critically important. And to that point, I think we need to really ensure that patients have access to high quality care and that we're measuring and evaluating the quality of care in rural settings as well as in urban settings so that if there are gaps that need to be addressed, that we have the ability to do that and the resources, you know, both in terms of culture and, you know, prioritization and also financial resources to do work that's going to improve the care and the lives of patients in rural areas. Thank you. Before we close the episode, we would love to hear a little bit more about each of you. Gabrielle, you completed training at the University of Wisconsin and moved to the University of Alabama. You focus on many aspects of cancer care delivery, particularly relevant to costs, communication. Can you tell us a little bit how you chose to focus on this? So I think I came to this, you know, through a little bit of a circuitous route in that when I was at the University of Wisconsin in my fellowship, I had an opportunity to work on a project looking at the end-of-life care of patients and how we integrate palliative care 
And I really sort of fell in love with this idea that we could make meaningful changes in how we deliver healthcare and how we talk to patients and what kinds of support that we give them that was very pragmatic and it could have relatively fast results. And so that really started what became a much longer journey into navigation and patient-reported outcomes and really understanding the patient experience that you know continues currently. And I think every day, you know, when I see patients in clinic about how we need that kind of work and how important the patient experience is. Thank you, Gabrielle. Deborah, after you finished training and you were in rural Nebraska, you decided to focus on lung cancer. What was the motivation behind that choice? So since the completion of my training, it has happened naturally that I've been treating patients with social and, and economic challenges. And lung cancer, to a great extent, targets those populations, mainly due to the epidemiology of the disease. For a while, we have seen smoking rates in people with less education and lower socioeconomic status are definitely higher. So I was heavily exposed to lung cancer care when I worked in rural Nebraska. And the multidisciplinary nature of the work I was able to provide there with that team was really satisfying. Satisfying to the point that we could not only, it was not only about the patients, of course, but also about the collaboration. And I like collaboration. This is just, I think most of us who go into healthcare do like that, enjoy. And lung cancer care is, is heavily multidisciplinary in nature, right? So later on, I worked at a county hospital. And due to the shifts in the workforce there, I had to lead the lung cancer program. And by then, the whole wave of precision medicine was coming. And I really enjoyed helping establish uniform molecular testing for the patients there working closely with the pathology department. So that health implementation initiative also was striking in my end as something that could affect the lives of many. And I'm, I'm in awe on a daily basis of the amount of advances coming forward through the clinical research channels in lung cancer. So I also get a lot of satisfaction bringing clinical trials to my patients. But Last but not least, I think lung cancer is still a very much stigmatized disease, and I feel a lot of gratitude for the opportunity to help and give support to those patients who, at a lot of times, are very isolated. Thank you. And we're certainly lucky to have the two of you uh, working in these very important issues. Well, we are out of time for this episode. Deborah and Gabrielle, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This was such a gratifying exchange of ideas. I really appreciate the opportunity to participate. Thank you. Thank you, Narjust. Thank you again. And thanks to everyone for listening to another episode of Lung Cancer Considered, the official ISLC podcast. I hope that you tune in regularly to give us a listen and don't forget to provide your feedback as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 